Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Thanks for joining everyone. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of July 10th, 2023. The first one, Lee, I wanted to start with was uh, something from Threat Fabric, and it's the Let's Call the New Sophisticated Fishing Toolset. Um, you know, this is kind of interesting to me just because of how well orchestrated this whole um, campaign was. But basically, it's a it's a vishing technique. If you're not familiar with vishing, it's the kind of uh, voice version of fishing or social engineering. Um, but basically, it was driven by installed malware. Um, the origins of how the malware got downloaded to people's uh, Android-type phones wasn't really necessarily determined, but they... You know, suspect it's like your typical social engineering techniques that are used. Um, but it's really interesting because the malware uses a bunch of uh, kind of uh, open source ways to reroute calls um, to basically to- take over uh, when you make calls, which ones they'll intercept and which ones they won't. So it's interesting. They create like a white list and a blacklist so that when you were to say call for specific services or want to call to verify alerts or alarms from banking, um, things like that, they'll intercept those calls and send you to fake call centers, which then will, you know, they have like MP3s preloaded with the malware that will play as when you call that gives you kind of that robo dial menu, um, which also helps facilitate uh, what you're actually calling about so that their fake call center can pick up and kind of respond appropriately. Um, so it's really interesting, you know, they kind of went through this whole, uh, routine of things to, to take advantage of this. Now this, this targeted South Korea and it's kind of very specific to that area. So a lot of the banks and things that, that they, um, developed and, um, used for this, uh, to emulate this was in that region as well. Um, and they didn't expect that this would actually, you know, be further out, but it's just kind of an interesting use of some of the VoIP or uh, voice over IP technology being used as well as kind of how they, I guess, expanded their social engineering techniques to even gather more information that they can use against their, their folks. Um, so the, the, it's interesting, the malware already pulled down and stole things and data from the users based on, you know, where they installed it on their phone. But, you know, they use this to get even more information um, and basically made it more of a foolproof approach. But one of the things that I, I thought was really interesting as well, other than just kind of like how they set up the whole campaign, was they listed the uh, domain they kind of controlled that was part of the routing and control that they had um, with the communications. Um, it listed all the ASNs that were associated and something that a lot of people don't pay attention to then asn is the atomic system number atomic system number number um and it's kind of where resources like ips and things on the internet kind of get grouped together as far as how they're being utilized and it's interesting if you actually look at a lot of threat actor reports and infrastructure there's some ASNs that are commonly used in general for nefarious or malicious activity uh, based on how they're associated or, or how they're easily accessed or utilized. So in this case, they had 14 different destinations um, that they used, and 10 of those 14 were associated with the same ASN. So sometimes it's kind of good when you're looking at activity or previous activity, you know, in your own environment, if you can kind of associate what ASNs are commonly being used. It helps you attribute to maybe what threat actor you're dealing with, as well as what other, say, activity you see from the similar ASN that you might want to actually look into or or try to monitor for in some cases. So um, that stood out to me. But yeah, that was just kind of an interesting read as far as this new type of malware and approach and, you know, taking advantage of the voice uh, 
over IP type techniques. Um, so yeah, Lee, I don't know what, uh, what you thought when you read this your way. No, you definitely mentioned it. Um, the, the most interesting piece I found of this article was, or to me personally, anyways, was the pre-recorded MP3 files that they used, um, for voice messages that would be played to the victim, um, which it just shows the level of preparation that they put into this, that they they probably did their research, they did reconnaissance, they probably called up all these different banks that they were going to emulate, I guess, and are impersonate. And the fact that they went through the trouble of creating a transcript for almost not every opportunity, but possibly a large amount of opportunities or options that the victim would pick. Mm-hmm. That just goes sh- to show uh, this wasn't just a off-the-shelf or you know straight-from-the-hip attack that we're going to do. They planned this out quite well, and uh, they really, really put a lot of thought into it. Like you said as well, was the use of all the open source and I guess the Android uh, infrastructure that already exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just goes to show that even though it's open source and it was created for legitimate intentions, there's always going to be someone that looks at it from a different lens and says, how can I leverage this whenever it comes to what I want to do? Um, and thinking about the developers you know, creating these concepts. So once again, you mentioned it, the VoIP traffic routing. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think anyone ever looked at it and said, man, this could be used malicious. And another big thing that sticks out is that uh, the downloader, uh, I know you said it wasn't determined specifically, but by the article, it sounds like there was a phishing web page, uh, yeah. something that the victim installed. So it's it just goes to show uh, being diligent, or diligent, not vigilant. <laughs> you don't want to be a vigilante. Um, being diligent with your cybersecurity awareness and paying attention to what's coming in your inbox or whatever the case would be, it could have possibly stopped this. You, know, I'm, you know, I, I say that like it, you know, paying attention is the golden gun or the, uh, you know, the easy button because if they're going to fish you, they're going to try their best and you're eventually going to get caught just like everyone else is vulnerable to clicking on a link. So yeah, just the age old social engineering and the complete innovation with these pre-recorded messages. Just one thing, it just shows that they were planning this for a long time. And the fact that I think the article mentioned it, that nothing is stopping them from using this all over Europe, that it's not just a, you know, South Korea was targeted. It's not that it was only built for South Korea. It just sounds like this was the testing bed, um, which always goes back into my mind, um, especially talking with you and your, uh, you know, your background with ICS. I always think of Russia and Ukraine's energy. Right. The first thing they did was they tried, you know, what can we do? And then a couple of years later, you know, they came back to black energy and really shut it down, really made it hurt. So Russia being the, you know, the people or the group that's always looking to get into your infrastructure and your credit or your critical infrastructure. I wonder, this sounds like, and I'm not going to play the attribution game, but it sounds like the same instance from a North Korea perspective, because they're always, their goal is always to get money because right. and they're poor. They don't have a lot of stuff going on um, to generate money. So how do they do that by hacking? And we've seen that through the Lazarus group, um, the Sony hacks and so on. Well, what I think is interesting is, you know, this technique that they kind of employ where they do have access to like your contact list and things like that. Um, and they also employ like this whitelist blacklist method of which calls will they intercept you know from an espionage perspective not like for just this type of campaign that would also be a very effective measure of say you 
landed on a device that you were targeting specific individuals and you wanted to be able to monitor or basically record people's calls and like route those calls through your infrastructure to record and then just, you know, forward it on to the actual uh, correct endpoint or correct user you're calling. Um, that'd be another effective way to kind of use some of the same techniques here. So it's almost like if you can kind of understand how to identify this type of behavior, um, could help protect against other types of threats that may be relevant to who you are or, or you know, what, what you have to offer. So. No, absolutely. And, and yeah, but the whitelist blacklist that I know the word sophisticated is thrown out a lot. So I guess I'll say innovative. Yeah. Um, what again, just a very, a very unique. It's like novel. Right. Like it's a, it's a unique approach and it kind of worries me for the future because <laughs> these things don't go away if it works. Right, right. Right. Cool. What do you got? So the, my first article is actually from Threatmon. And I think the last time I was on here, I talked about them, but they pushed out a, uh, a big 30 page, uh, sorry, 45 page, um, report called June's cyber battleground decoding ransomware and APT attacks in Europe. So if you listen to this podcast in the past, you probably know I'm a sucker for these types of reports just because it's so much general, not general, but, um, what overarching information where, where I live, it's very atomic. It's very, uh, niche and specific. So I like to take time to read these reports because it kind of gets me, uh, a bigger picture idea of what's going on out there. Um, so any down, I get a chance to read them. I do. Uh, but this is speaking specifically on ransomware in June in Europe. And, you know, Conti, Reveal, uh, and one that I'm probably going to, or sorry, Arg Evil, is that how it's, I forget, I think that's a debate over that. Um, but <laughs> the Akira ransomware groups, they're covered in a section, um, once again, talking only about uh, ransomware. Then it covers APTs that were seen at, um, in Europe or attacking Europe. So we got um, APT32. Uh, Axiom, which is a Chinese cyber espionage group, and Muddy Water, who is a cyber espionage group believed to be part of Iran's uh, Ministry of Intelligence and Security. So they kind of went beyond the ransomware and kind of said, well, let's take a look at more APTs. And then what's interesting is normally they throw out just, or you know, in these reports, normally you'll just see a big wrap-up of TTPs and campaigns. Well, the way they did it is they kind of spun it and looked at each country on its own so countries like or in still in europe so we're looking at spain netherlands italy and germany and others i think belgium was in there um but the idea is they have this all this information and the fact that they broke it down by country i thought was interesting because we always talk about industry we always talk about you know what are you focusing on um from your cyber landscape point of view and this kind of shows that it may not be specifically industry. It may just be who's attacking what country um, from a perspective of are we friendly with them? Are we not? What, you know, um, all that, you know, political stuff that's going on. Um, but there's a lot of intel in this report. Um, and I can't share with you all because there's a lot. And I'd be reading it for days. Um, but when I see something like this, especially when it comes to being broken down as country, I like to think about how would I apply this to my threat hunting uh, perspective? Or how would I use this or how would I fit this into my game plan? And because they broke it down by country, I think it's easier to start looking at which APT groups had the biggest percentage of activity and then you can start taking that threat actor approach to your threat hunting. Uh, and that involves looking up previous attacks, what MITRE TTPs were identified historically, um, if there are any TTPs mentioned lately, which ones are really standing true. So 
you know, looking back, say you got, you know, a 2015 report on ABT32, take a look at what tactics and techniques and behaviors they're exhibiting, and then take a look at a more recent one. Which TTP stuck around? Because that goes back to the idea of they're using it because it works. They will exhibit that behavior over and over again because it works. And then you can get a better idea of how to prioritize your approach. So just APT32 as an example, again, you look at historic value, you see that they used execution through PowerShell. There's, you know, system discovery, and then, you know, they exfilled using, um, you know, rclone. So then you look at the next campaign, and then instead of rclone, they're using a different exfil tool, but they're using, they're still using PowerShell and system discovery. You know, you can just continue to work through this, you know, this process of identifying high priorities, t high priority TTPs and behaviors that you can start looking for as a threat hunter. And that's how you'll prioritize uh, your actual uh, threat hunt approach. So what were your thoughts? I know it's a lot. Yeah, no. Um, I always think these articles or these reports are interesting. I think it's what's nice too is if you're kind of new to the game, they do kind of give you a good top level of some names you might want to be familiar with um, as far as actors and, you know, obviously the specific actor classes and things to think about. And it does kind of give you a, hey, what are kind of some some of the activity levels? Like you said, I think it's always good to understand like how active some groups are being. Now, that's sometimes not always telling because sometimes things aren't being discovered as of yet or reported. Um, but the one thing that um, I did not like, or I wish they did a better job with is every time I see graphs that have groupings of like other or unknown or whatever i always like to see that like broken out further to better understand why they kind of lumped everything in that way um which they kind of mentioned in some of them but that's always i think a really good to understand like you know their mindset as far as how they're looking at the data and obviously they do a lot with the malware piece and i see it a lot where and it, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine when you look at uh, antivirus-type solutions. When they flag on malware, they have their signatures, and sometimes their signatures don't really mean much, at least to you or any of the common names we're used to. Um, and in this case, you know, Trojan always comes up. And, you know, if Trojans are basically, it's malware bundled with some legitimate software, right? That's the idea. That's how it gets in. But I really wish like Trojan really meant more like they would either call out, okay, what type of software is being Trojanized essentially, right? Like, is it like IT tools or video game cracks or like, what are they, where are they seeing these types of Trojans existing? And then also I wish like the malware side of the Trojan was better categorized um, as, you know, like, was it a downloader? Was it a rat? Was it a stealer? Like what, what was the purpose of the Trojan you know, malware in general? Um, sometimes I feel like Trojans is so overused or almost interchangeable with malware and it kind of creates a lot of confusion kind of because it's not what a Trojan is supposed to be. So I really wish they had some data points around that because Trojan was obviously their biggest number by a huge margin yeah. when they categorize it that way. But I feel like there's some information or detail there that would be really beneficial to understand. Um, but yeah, like I said, this, this as far as a, a good reporter, especially if you're not used to reading reports, this one's easily digestible. Uh, I feel like anyone can kind of pick up and, and learn something from this, uh, this new to the game for sure. So, you know, I think these are good things to kind of put your, your eyes on. And I, I think maybe you should lead the way on breaking down, or I guess what, creating subcategories of Trojans. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe I'll uh, do a little snippet on how I figure things should be broken under the label when it comes to, like, malware categorization. But I don't have to do some research myself to figure out what's more the standard because I don't know if I've seen, like, a true standard, right? I feel like maybe everyone kind of does it their own way. So maybe it'd be interesting to try to create that standard. Now that That is a very good point, though. As we are, as everything is improving their cybersecurity stance and knowledge and, you know, how they approach things, those general terms have got, or in the end, have got to be more specific. So, yeah. like you said, of what to expect. Right. Cool. So, I'm going to dive into uh, my next one here. And this is from uh, The Record. 
um, dot media, but it's basically the Killnet as a private military hacking company. For now, it's probably just a dream. And then basically it's the idea of anyone's ever heard of Killnet. They're um, the most recent thing I saw was back in June when they were talking, they did the big YouTube push about how they're going to take down all the European banking system and all this kind of stuff. And it was kind of like what you see from, if you were to watch any um, TV show or movie that has big time name hackers or groups in there doing things, it, it has the same feel. Um, very Hollywood in some ways, but what's interesting is they do have a big kind of, like people do pay attention because they're the way they, they're so good at what they do. And the leader of their group is Kill Milk, which I always, I, I love the name. It cracks me up. Um, but, you know, they made recent claims, basically, that they want to um, basically change from being like this hacktivist type of group, which is very pro-Russian. And they want to be basically a private military hacking company. Like they're trying to say, we're going to do this and then they're going to offer training and they're going to offer free training for people that are part of the Russian military and they want to basically bolster out their forces and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, that's really interesting. Um, and, you know, if if they do this, uh, obviously it would, it would kind of create a big stir in the underground. Um, but, you know, historically, Killnet has also been really big for most of their attacks, primarily just leveraging DDoS services, which, you know, just doing denial services, different websites or services to bring them down temporarily or whatever. It doesn't really have a huge impact on infrastructure, but does cause an inconvenience for things. Um, and there's also a lot of times where these big claims of all these things that they have done, sometimes they kind of take uh, credit for what other people have done. So I don't know, like, it's just kind of like the in your face kind of out there, always really interesting, always really well done. Like uh, their videos, I think are just very entertaining. Um, but, you know, I think the one challenge here is, you know, we'll see if they can pull this off um, for one. Or or what does it really mean? Does it even stir some um, other action or movement in other groups to do something similar or whatever? Like, what does this really mean for the hacktivist class of people or group um, and what they want to mature into? But, you know, with this, you know, there's going to be, you know, two things. I feel like the more public you get with these types of ideas and things that happen, um, if if you don't meet or deliver on the things that you're promising, then you lose a lot of credibility. So, you know, there's been a lot of public activity going on with Killnet. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if it kind of fizzles out or not or if they're able to deliver. Um, so kind of like how much traction do they really create? But I don't know. It just This was really entertaining. I saw them in the news a few times or, you know, in social media with all their posts trying to, you know, get some traction on their thoughts, beliefs, what they want to do and achieve, and obviously becoming a private military hacking company. Uh, I mean, that's pretty substantial if they had the capability. Um, and like, how would other companies respond to that? Because obviously they're under the clause of military. Does that mean that there's a different um, rules of engagement for how other countries would engage them per se? So yeah, what did you think? So very, very interesting claim and approach and idea. Mm -hmm. Now, the first couple thoughts that came across my mind was, I think this is just legitimizing the ideas that we've had all along, especially when we talk about state-sponsored threat actors but they're just far enough uh, away to, you know, they're like at an arm's distance where they're not actually associated with it by like the paper yeah. trail, but you know that they, um, I think this is just a opportunity to validate that and gain some more clout, um, help Russia out. What I, what I did, I did see what is called the dark school. Um, yeah, I thought that was a interesting idea, especially teaching the multiple languages. Uh, I believe it was Russia, English, was Spanish and Hindi. Yep. Um, that they're they're looking to be, have a wide effect. Mm -hmm. um, now I wonder, are they going to be sorted like Harry Potter style? 
with like the sorting hat. Um, but really, what I, I'm really curious about that if this does happen, if this does become a thing, will they just be treat? Will, will they be treated like a scapegoat? Whatever push comes to shove. So if we ever do get, you know, or if we ever hold the actors uh, or the threat actors' feet to the fire, will Russia just, you know, say, oh, it was these guys. Yes, they were affiliated with us, but, you know, and then just completely cut ties. Uh, I guess that's always the risk you run when dealing with state spawn or state sponsored organizations. But other than that, it was just a really interesting read. Like, the fact that they want to get better, they want to get more uh, followers and whatnot. Um, and I think that if they do get state-sponsored, that we might be in a little more trouble. Um, especially because they'll have more time, they'll have more resources, uh, and possibly more money. Yeah, I mean, like, the plausible deniability, like you said, I mean, that's a big one. Um, but I also feel like uh, if there was a very active group, I think Russia has done a very good job with not necessarily offering this asylum, but, uh, you know, they basically are okay if these groups are in their area or territory, as long as they're not going after Russian targets. Right. So in some ways you're, they're kind of, you're kind of protecting yourself from people that want to do the wild west stuff on the internet. They just like retire them quietly. Yeah, and then yeah, there's some some good faith things that Russia has done for some of the ransomware groups that we've seen, and they made very public when they did. Um, but Russia also confiscated a lot of money, um, and so they made profits off of them. And then I, from what I remember, some of the people that they basically brought in got released not too long after. So, you know, whatever that was. Um, Either way, it's it's always interesting when you look at hacktivist groups and their affiliations with different uh, states, state sponsor type stuff. So this is just really public, and like you said, you know, just kind of interesting to see how this will kind of play out. You wonder if anyone else will adopt this approach uh, moving forward. Yeah, and you know the thing is, is I'm, we, I mean, we kind of know there's firms out there that kind of have done this or have been leveraged this way before. It's just the first time that there's like a non-organized uh, group that's not really a true company performing these tactics. I mean, that's got to be really hard to like, how how's payout work? Where's the organization? How do you guarantee certain things when it's so distributed amongst basically enthusiasts? Um, yeah, like how and how effective can it be? Obviously, we've seen where um, what's the other big group anonymous right like there's been some spinoff groups from anonymous from some of the more elite anonymous folks that have been able to do some things right been capable their capabilities have been pretty decent um but as a whole you know anonymous is not as they're not all as sophisticated as, as those few so yeah it's just interesting really is really is and i mean you're giving this you're giving that that uh government more resources anyway so they i mean it seems like a win-win Yep, sorry. Yeah, it it is it is really interesting, and just thoughts keep churning and churning. And be like, oh well, right, right. All right. So yeah, what do you got? So one? I got a Sentinel One post, uh, or on their blog, an article from Sentinel One called "Neonet: The Kingpin of Spanish E Crime." Now, this is a a company that I have saved in my favorites for their blog because they normally produce quality um, quality research. In this case, it's actually not their research. And so VX Underground, uh, I think you're familiar with them, but if you're not familiar with who VX Underground is, they have a Twitter and they have a site uh, that they collect malware uh, as source code malware samples and papers on the internet so they're this big malware repository that um you can get access to um if you don't know the password they always love answering that uh if you dm them or you know 
give him a shout out on Twitter. Um, but VX Underground and Sentinel One actually paired up and created a malware research challenge. And in it, they asked researchers across the cybersecurity community to submit previously unpublished work to showcase their talents and bring their insights to a wider audience, which I find fascinating and I love it. I love that part. Um, yeah. It sounds like a B-sides approach where, you know, the B-sides conferences were stood up whenever they realized that, hey, we have a lot of people and a lot of good talks that couldn't make big conferences like RSA. So they're like, well, we still want to hear it. Let's go out and find all these talks. Um, and that's what they did. And they're starting a series of publishing those the people that actually participated in the malware research challenge. And this is actually the winner. Um, and I apologize if I butcher this name, but it looks like Paul, Paul, P-O-L, Phil, um, from uh, Quo Intelligence. I apologize to both organizations and both parties there if I destroyed your name. Um, but he was looking at the kingpin of Spanish or the kingpin of Spanish e-crime. And they created a, um, or what Net, sorry, NeoNet created was this whole market around um, snishing as a service. So SMS phishing, um, basically, you know, all those text messages you get from illegitimate people, they're saying, hey, you have a package coming. Hey, you know, your bank account has been locked. Um, he created, or NetNeo created a service known as AnchorX, um, which they did was, or and how he did it is he leveraged sender IDs from authentic financial institutions. Now, the standard, you know, scare tactics are involved. Uh, you know, they say, hey, you know, your account has been accessed, or hey, you know, overwithdrawn or you've withdrawn too much money. Um, but, it, you know, he goes through this process of scaring the people into it, and then not only do they does he steal money from you, he'll say, hey, you know, to protect yourself better, download this um, program or this app that will actually protect you um, from future attacks like this. Um, so... The problem there is now that the victim not only thinks that their credit or their account has been accessed, um, they sign in, he gets the username and password. Well, now the next step is, well, how do you address the multi-factor uh, authentication or MFA me mechanism and problem? Um, you know, a lot of banking applications use that. So what he, what he did was he coaxed victims into installing a security application for their bank account on their Android devices, which actually ended up being a spyware for Androids uh, known as SMSI, that's EYE. So now, not only can he gain access to their account, but whenever a one-time use or one-time password is created and given to, that, to the victim, he'll be able to see it, and then he could access it again and uh, then almost uh, have or maintain persistence through or even after the initial attack. Um, it's pretty interesting. They said he's gotten over 350,000 euros, um, but they say the sum is actually probably higher. Um, but yeah, it's just a really, really interesting approach that not only did they. And I think this kind of goes with the let's call that we, that the first article that you mentioned is that they didn't just go out and do the standard smishing where I'm going to send you a thousand people something and hope that it works. But they, he created a service out of it. Like now, not only does he make money from, you know, victims that he targeted, but if he wants to outsource that or sell it to people, then I'm sure he gets some of the cut as well, which is fascinating that someone would take that approach, that time, um, the dedication to create that those types of things. Um, 
And I know there's a lot of people out there that listen or look for the miter attack tanks, which I'm always happy to share. And in the article, they're at the very bottom. But this actually, um, this took me to a different matrix, which normally I'm taking a look at the Enterprise. And now I got a little more familiar with the mobile um, oh, yeah. mobile ma ma or matrix um, because I was trying to think, I was like, well, all the stuff that I know, persistence, you know, that uh, Windows registry, it doesn't exist on Android. Um, so I actually got some time to poke around a different matrix, which I don't normally. Um, but you'll see the same type of techniques, just some different numbers like system information discovery. This time it's T1426. Oh, there's the web service one-way communication, which is T1481.003. And that talks about the SMSI Trojan using a Telegram bot. Um, and then, but it goes into more detail, but it's just really, really interesting and uh, a nice way to get introduced to that matrix and how the Android or how the mobile scene looks. So what were your thoughts? Yeah, so I completely agree with, you know, what you talked about at the beginning about that whole like crowdsourcing approach to find really interesting research. Um, that part I thought was super cool that they did that. Um, I think it's a great idea because um, sometimes, you know, even us as threat hunters, sometimes we pigeonhole ourselves in like what we know best or, and we kind of put up like, you know, soft guardrails that kind of drive us down the same path a lot of times and really to get over those hurdles or that exposure to new ideas and things, you really just kind of need to have more thoughts in the pot. You know, and I thought they did a great job with that. Um, the other thing I thought was really interesting about NeoNet and his whole malware and this smishing and stuff that he developed was his OPSEC. So OPSEC is kind of the term we use for like operational security, which is really around how do you protect your operations so that they don't get compromised or um, basically stopped so your operations can continue to be successful. And, you know, they made us some of, you know, call outs to it as far as like, yeah, his, his smishing is really clean. It's really hard to associate that it's actually smishing or what it goes back to, um, which was cool. But also the, the phishing landing sites that you would be driven to, to basically try to log in and everything like that. Um, this is also really interesting to me too, because it's the way he used OBSEC there was he only allowed um, user agents from mobile platforms. So, you know, if you try to go there with a normal computer or your standard Mozilla, Chrome, you know, edge on a computer that doesn't have the mobile tags in the user agent, it wouldn't load. It wouldn't even, you know, it, it wouldn't get there successfully. And then also um, from all the discovery services, you know, you've got Google out there discovering sites. You've got some other scanning sites and things like that. Uh, it, it sounded like he also did a very good job of preventing those sites or services from picking up his sites. So it was like a really great way to like put something out there that usually when these sites get discovered, you know, by any, any means, they kind of get flagged, thrown up there publicly, people block them, they constantly have to change. Well, it sounds like he did a really good job kind of staying under the radar and that's that like obstetic mindset. So like there's, you can tell there's a lot of thought that went into not just how can I achieve, you know, this goal, but it really was like, how can I stand up an operation? And that's a completely different mindset than you think about some um, adversaries when they just kind of a one and done versus, Hey, no, this is a methodology I want to apply. And how do I protect that? Uh, so that was really cool to me. Um, seeing some of those techniques to defend your offensive operation, essentially with that, you know, obstetic approach. So that's what I picked up the most on. That is pretty, it, I always find it interesting because we're reading the same article, but some things stick out to you, to you to be more important and it's what I, you know, than I, it, it's just neat getting the perspective of someone else, right? Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's why I really enjoy these podcasts. It's <laughs> good talking to you again. Um, but yeah, it, um, it, that's when I, go ahead. I was going to say like, uh, that's why I really love even when we're, we were digging into things as far as like emerging threats to build threat hunts on. It's like, we'll dig into something and someone will pull something out. And we're like, oh, it's really cool. But someone else always seems to find something else. And that's why, you know, I, I think it's really good to have a very diverse team of people looking at the same information. Um, 
because you're right. There's just so many different things that people focus or pick up on and you can't, I mean, like, I don't know how you solve that any other way without having just a diverse group of people. No, you're absolutely right. You need, you need all those eyes. Um, and it's a little worrisome that these types of activity and force, I guess, forward thinking from the threat actors is becoming mm. more of the norm, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they're getting smarter for how we try to defend, right? I mean, I guess that's kind of, it's always that cat and mouse kind of game, but yeah. It seems like they're getting more away from the opportunistic attacks to a well-guided business, <laughs> I guess, repeatable process. Right, like they don't want to do, you know, more work than they have to if they could protect it, right? So that's just like anybody, I guess. Yeah. All right, how are you going to wrap this, or how are you going to wrap this up? So yeah, this one I just thought was interesting. Um, I picked it up from Security Affairs, and it was the title is "A Man from Tracy, California, has been charged with computer attack on the Discovery Bay Water Treatment Facility." Um, and this is just interesting because um, the the story here was the a guy worked for a said company that was doing some like contract air consulting work with this water treatment facility. Uh, in that process, he had installed uh, some remote administrative tool, uh, one of the systems that's used to kind of manage the water treatment facility in general. And later on, and I don't know if the contract expired with the said company or not, but either way, when he finally resigned from that company that was doing the consulting or contracting work, um, that's when he went in through his access and deleted the software that was used to manage the treatment facility plan. So basically kind of interfere with the operations that way. And then of course, you know, with the investigations, they were able to identify that it was him. This is what happened. And they put this whole story together. Um, but you know, to me, I'm looking at like, man, that's, you know, it's tough because, you know, this is kind of access. If you were like, Hey, why did someone do this? They're like, Oh, we'll justify it because they're doing work for us and they need this type of access and, or these tools installed. Um, but like knowing what software you have being installed, especially in really critical systems, um, like that and being able to monitor that and how many layers do you have to control that? Like, could, do you have firewalls that you have allows in as well as, you know, some sort of whitelisting that allows the software. So, you know, any one of those controls, you don't, you don't have to turn them all on to stop all the activity, but you can turn at least one on somewhere, um, to help manage that. Uh, but you know, that's kind of the, the thought process there as far as how would you try to discover, manage, maintain this type of stuff. But in the article, they also listed all the other attacks against water treatment plants. And what was interesting, I think they listed 10 additional attacks and nine of which were in 2021. And I want to say three of those are actually ransomware. Um, and I don't really pay too much attention or, or these all didn't bubble up to me at different times um, back then. But just knowing that people were able to get to systems um, to cause this type of problem. And, you know, what's what's really good nowadays, right, is a lot of operational networks. As much as there is some automation associated with managing them and sensor control, um, we're still able to run a lot of these systems manually too. And so in a lot of these attacks, they were basically able to say, oh, well, the system's showing me kind of the ransomware notifications, but we can take those systems down and just have to manually um, spend the effort and time to run the system and run the process. And so that they were to get past that way. But, you know, it just kind of raises some alarm bells in my head. Like, man, they, these are really critical infrastructure, you know, um, our critical infrastructure. And obviously there's enough access to get there. Uh, and I believe, you know, the article they even called out that because of the large number of these things happening, um, I think a number of them were in California, um, the Biden administration wanted to do a serious audit of the systems to make sure that, hey, we're not, you know, we're managing these things correctly because it can have a huge um, effect on, you know, people in general. So it was just kind of a good highlight as far as like, hey, you know, something as simple as contractors working in your networks and what they're doing and, and some of the access that's really being allowed is either maybe there's access, but there's a lot of like the remote administrative type tools, which is funny because you see ransomware groups dropping those tools quite often. So, you know, just being aware of those types of things is really important. Um, 
just to be looking for because even legitimate or not, you should know where those systems are, especially if it's non-standard for your environment. So uh, paying attention to those is important. And it just kind of highlights that, yeah, we still have a lot of work to do in a lot of areas to make sure that uh, we're doing the right things uh, because there can be some serious consequences. You know, when you think about critical infrastructure, this is a good example. Yeah, so this this story kind of screened every, I guess, organization's nightmare scenario. And yeah. if you think about cybersecurity awareness training, they always talk about uh, disgruntled employees, right? Uh, now, yeah, I've known some people that I worked with that have been disgruntled, but never to the point where they're going to threaten the livelihood of the company. They're just angry, yeah. but this goes to show that, you know, that's always included for a reason. Yeah. You never know when someone's just going to have that bad of a day that they're going to be fed up and say, all right, today's the day. Um, and it also touches on uh, shadow IT. It touches yeah. on the need for um, the best access inventory and management that you can and now I don't know the answer for that. I, I'm sure every organization is different, but it really highlights the need to say, all right, well, if someone leaves, how long is it going to be until we shut down their access? Who's going to do that? Are we, you know, shutting it down the day of that the, you know, once the contract is over and expires, are we doing it that day or that morning? Or are we going to give them, you know, a week of extra access? Um, who knows? But once again, you're talking about the remote access tool. Um, you know, do they, yes, they need it. Okay. That's fine. No, it still exists. No, that is still in your environment. Um, and once that person is gone, that needs it. You know, either remove it, shut it down, heal that access, um, or, or, you know, whatever, whatever's needed. Um, now this kind of, you know, you mentioned the other ransomware attacks. And that just seems uh, not that it's the same thing. Um, and I wonder, were those water treatment facilities? Yeah, actually? they were all water treatment. All all the attacks were water treatment. In this. Yeah, but I mean, like, because it's ransomware, was it was it just a spray and pray, or were they, like, really? Oh, were they targeted? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you it was just, you know, availability, yeah. Um. And, yeah, and with ransomware, I always that's like normally the first thought is, you know, because it's such a money making uh, effort, are they just going for everyone? Um, but this seems definitely to be a more targeted thing, where that person definitely wanted to make the company hurt or make that organization hurt because he was or because his contract expired. Um, but yeah, of course, uh, in my mind, once again, with you, I always think of ICS, uh, industrial control systems. And I always think of SCADA, um, which what's the acronym for SCADA or what's the standard? That's really slipping my brain right now. I just Third call it SCADA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you did. <laughs> Advice system control and advisory. All right, one of our listeners, uh, you should let us know. <laughs> for next time, we'll have the acronym SCADA. Great. Um, but yeah, just because you you live in that world, we worked in it. Um, it, it's always worrisome. You know, I know within SCADA still there are like, um, like kill switches where if something does go too far and you get all these errors. That there's actually a built-in safety mechanism oh, that yeah, will protect down. Um, yeah, it'll concern. Yeah. No, it's um something you brought up that I like was you know you talked about you know asset inventory controls you know well that's why CIS you know they have their their controls and at the top is usually hardware and software inventory. No, yeah, something yeah. that something like you know I understand like there's say software left behind gave this person access but you run into a lot of issues too when people install things that you're not aware of that are being maintained because you know the other worst case scenario and like 
Uh, Log4j is a great example of this where it just existed in places where people didn't know it existed until they looked for it uh, from a vulnerability that was easily you know, exploitable. Yeah, if someone's installing things to, you know, willy-nilly and then those things somehow are exposed in a way where if there were vulnerabilities that could be used in an attack, um, that's something that'll bite you as well, just like leaving access out there um, like this. So, yeah, it's really important. And that's why those controls are at the top. And, you know, I think that's the best way to have good control of environments like that is really instilling those controls specifically. Absolutely. Those, the, those security controls are... Uh, if you're not familiar with them, go and check them out. They're awesome. Yeah. Um, it gives every organization a great place to start. Um, and before we wrap, wrap this up, SCADA stands for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition. I couldn't yeah, get that one hanging. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so that's that's all I got for that. I do have uh, one announcement I want to kind of like uh, bring to the forefront before we close out, and that is uh, next week. Um, July 20th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we're going to have our live interactive podcast, and that's going to be a chance for us to dive into other kind of more, not so much article-driven, but just discussion topics in the field, um, in our space, things that are hot topics, things that people are interested about. Uh, we also will have our Discord up and live, so anyone that wants to join in the conversation, you know, we really welcome that. We're trying to get better at engaging with people too through that. So it's always fun to kind of share ideas, talk to ideas. We'll we'll take some ridicule, you know. We'll try to respond the best we can to things. And um, there's a you know cocktail theme cocktail drink to enjoy with us as well. So look forward to you know that podcast next week and hoping to see a good enough number there so we can have a great conversation. So make sure to mark that on your calendars. And with that, I just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of July 10th, 2023. Happy hunting, everyone. Yeah, happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.